So my name is Zach Ardena. I work at a Latin restaurant called Fortuna's Row in downtown Calgary. On social media, you can find me on Instagram, Z-A-C-A-R-I-E-L underscore. As a kid, every Sunday after church, our mom would take us to uh, this local kanji spot in Toronto called um, Kanji Time, original I know. And uh, it was kind of our um, incentive to go to church. Sorry, mom. <laughs> and um, every time we were there, we'd always get the um, shredded pork with century egg kanji. And uh, I know a lot of people don't like century egg. I guess the texture, the taste, whatever. But it really grew on me because uh, we would get it in the uh, kanji every time. And uh, along with that, we'd always get the savory donut with the rice noodle wrapped around it. Like, that right there is a core childhood food memory for me. So, yeah. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Duncan Lee with Bar Chouette and formerly a foreign concept restaurant. Uh, yeah, my fondest memory of kanji was growing up. And whenever I was sick, my mom would make this kanji with lots and lots of ginger in it. Uh, it always soothed the soul and always helped to make me feel better. Kanji. The humble underdog of Asian cuisine is the dish that embodies both simplicity and depth. It is a comforting, soul-soothing porridge made from the most basic of ingredients, rice and water. Yet within its unassuming appearance lies a world of flavor and tradition. Today I'm going to listen to your stories that you've sent me over the week. And we're going to talk about one of the most underrated dishes in Asian cuisine. And it's going to all happen right now on the Endless Code Podcast. Kanji, also known as rice porridge, has a long and diverse history. It is believed to have originated in ancient China over 2,000 years ago. Now, kanji is believed to have been consumed as early as the Zhou dynasty in China, around 1046 to 256 BCE. It was initially used for medicinal purposes and was considered a soothing and easily digestible food, especially for the sick. When I'm sick, all I want is my mom's ludo. It's a gigantic steaming caldera full of gingery, garlicky lugo. So I can sweat it all out in a carb coma. Hey, what's up? My name is Brandon Bauzon. I'm the sous chef at Nan's Little House, and my social is Lasso Cooking YYC. One of my fondest memories of uh, congees growing up was when I was younger. I used to get sick a lot, so my mom and my grandma would normally take make me kanji and they would make me out of scaldo so the filipino version with chicken uh, lots of ginger uh, onions you know the typical filipino rice porridge i'd be eating that when i was sick that was my uh, chicken noodle soup per se uh when when i was younger uh it was one of the fondest things i ever had growing up was eating that and eating it with my grandma and my my mom and my mom feeding me when i was a small kid and all that Drinking it with some ginger ale, you know, laying in bed hurting because I was sick ass. But those are one of my first memories of eating uh, kanji or in the Filipino version, arascaldo. Um, growing up, I've given that to my kids and I've given that and made that for them when they were sick. And that's become like almost a staple in our household when anybody's sick. I'll whip that up right quick, give it to my daughter and my son when they're sick and, you know, 
just passed on the traditions, you know? So, that being said, I've made a lot of different types of congees in, in my culinary career, ranging from seafood, chicken, to pork, you know, and just mixed, mixed it up and remixed it. But the go-to is always going to be the agascalzo, some scallions, maybe a little bit of crunchy chicharro on top, you know, just savory comfort food. It's a typical Asian, when you're sick, comfort food. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about it. So yeah, that's my take on kanji and agascalzo. You can still see that today in many of the examples from the stories that we have from some of our listeners. Now, over time, kanji spread to other parts of Asia, including Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and Southeast Asian countries like Thailand. And each region developed its own variations and ingredients for this versatile dish. Now, kanji as a comfort food is a very nostalgic and a heartwarming one. And I think it's mainly due to its cultural significance as it's played a role in in history, especially in Chinese culture and history. And during times of scarcity like famines or wars, it served as a staple food due to its ability to feed so many people with minimal ingredients. And we're going to see that later on in the episode when we go through uh, a recipes. Now, in the present day, kanji has evolved beyond its medicinal roots and is still enjoyed as a comfort food with a wide variety of toppings and flavors. People may add ingredients like vegetables, meat, fish, or various seasonings or eggs to create unique and delicious variations. Thanks. I'm Liz, and you can find me at Deep Dish Supper Club on Instagram, where a few friends and I host monthly supper clubs that explore our wonderings about the role of food in our lives. For me, jok is something that is completely intertwined with my heart. It's my soul food. And I was lucky enough to grow up with both sets of grandparents around. And of course, they would feed me jok all the time throughout my childhood. It always struck me how different the jok was between my mom's side and my dad's side, though. My gungung and popo, my maternal grandparents, made silky, thin jok with homemade fish balls, and it was served with perfectly minced pickled turnip and super thin julians of ginger. And my mama and yeye, my paternal grandparents, made a thick and creamy jok full of salted egg and, and century egg, and then it was topped with scallions, and they were both super delicious. When I was 20, I tried my aunt's jok and it was completely different, a totally different texture than her mom's and made with ground pork and ginger instead. And, you know, jok, even while my close cousins and other people like me grew up with the same fondness towards it, each of us has a unique and personal bowl. And so now that I'm on my own, it's my hangover cure and my blanket on sick days. And I'm still figuring out what my characteristic jok is going to be. Kanji is the epitome of comfort food. With every spoonful, it transcends cultural boundaries, connecting people across the vast and diverse landscapes of Asia. It's known by many names. Juk in Cantonese, Buburayam in Indonesia, Okayu in Japanese, and Lugao in Tagalog, just to name a few. But the essence remains the same. What I can tell you is that kanji is one of those dishes that's highly underrated. I've sold it in my restaurant from time to time, and I find that I can sell a shit ton one weekend and almost none the next. 
What I do find, though, is that nostalgia is a powerful selling feature when it comes to dishes with a high comfort food factor, and kanji is definitely one of those. The magic of kanji lies in its versatility. Basically, it's a blank canvas, and it welcomes an array of toppings and seasoning, each adding layers of taste and texture. For such a simple yet versatile dish, there is some fascinating science behind it. So here's an overview of the science of cooking kanji. Kanji primarily consists of rice and water, although variations can include other ingredients like meats, vegetables, or flavorings. You can also use stock or coconut milk. The type of rice used, whether it's short grain, long grain, or glutinous, can impact the texture and consistency. Starch gelatinization is a key scientific process in making kanji. As the rice cooks in the water, its starch granules absorb moisture and heat, swelling and eventually bursting. This process thickens the liquid and turns it into a porridge-like consistency. So the higher water-to-rice ratio, the thinner the kanji will be, or vice versa. Now, rice starch consists of two components, amylose and amylopectin. Now, amylose molecules create a stable gel network in the kanji, while amylopectin contributes to its creaminess. The balance of these two components can affect the final texture, and because amylopectin is a glucose-storing component in the starch, it can have a high glycemic index. So health-wise, it's a good thing to know if you're diabetic, which is why the older you get, the more you find mixed rice as part of the regular diet. So usually with ones like that, you can see a lot of different like multi-grains mixed in as well. Now, the longer you cook kanji, the more the starches break down, resulting in a smoother and creamier texture. The choice of the cooking vessel as well, such as a traditional clay pot or a modern rice cooker, can also influence the cooking time and the outcome. Now, what I like to do, my way to go is to go low and slow. And I seem to get the best results from that. And really, it's a matter of just, you know, taking your time. Now, as kanji cooks, it can also absorb flavor from added ingredients, such as meat, seafood, or seasonings. And like I said before, for added flavor, you can also use stock instead of water. And as I go into the recipe later on, we're going to see how we can introduce flavors and build layers as we go. Cooking rice into kanji can also make it easier for the body to absorb nutrients as the starch gelatinization process partially breaks down the rice, making it more digestible, which of course gives it that sort of medicinal properties that it's always known for, which means that it's great for elderly people, sick, and very young. Now understanding the scientific aspects of cooking kanji can be helpful if you want to achieve the desired and textured flavor, or of course you can just use your instincts and using time, using the use of liquid, you can kind of determine and play it by ear and make something that you can be happy with and fuck science. Now we've heard a lot of Filipinos during the, this episode talk about Arascaldo or Lugao. And a lot of the common properties included lots of sliver ginger, lots of garlic, and sometimes chicken. Now, of course, since kanji is so simple, it's the perfect food for, you know, elderly people, young or sick people, which is why we have a lot of nostalgia telling stories of how they were sick. Now, I always, I always remember having arascaldo whenever I was sick. And that tender chicken with garlic and so much of that lovely ginger was like the equivalent of a chicken noodle soup, like Brandon said. 
So if you're from my generation, you've probably remembered being home sick on a school day and eating Arascaldo while watching The Price is Right. Now, making a congee is, of course, super simple. At its essence, congee is basically rice and water. The ratio varies depending on the thickness that you want to achieve, but you can start with an 8 to 1 ratio of water to rice. Some people will go from 12 to 1, um, but it's up to you. The charm of this dish is that it's really tough to screw up, and if you find that your resulting congee is too thick, just add more water. So if you start with a cup of rice, all you need is 8 cups of water. Now, of course, since you're working with a blank canvas here, you can start with stock to start building a base of flavor. Now, if you're really ambitious, you can start your pot with a couple tablespoons of oil then saute some, you know, some diced shallots, some minced garlic and a thumb-sized piece of julienne ginger. Then add your dry rice and continue to saute till the rice absorbs the aromatic oil. Now, this technique is just like a risotto. It's a relatively simple step to introduce and build flavor. Once that's said and done, you add your water or stock and bring it to a boil. And once it begins to boil, bring it to a gentle simmer and let it cook until the rice breaks down. The cooking process takes a bit of time, which as you know, is one of the greatest ingredients of all. As you cook, keep stirring occasionally to ensure that the rice isn't sticking to the bottom of the pot. Now, during the cooking process, you should see three stages of cooking, which will be the kanji's way of telling you where you're at. Now, stage one is when the rice is just cooked. The grains are done, just like you'd see in a chicken soup and rice. The consistency of the kanji at this point will be like soup as well, so keep going. Stage two is when the rice begins to break apart. This is when the rice will begin to release starches that will thicken the liquid. Now, at this point, the dish is still soupy, but beginning to get thicker. Now, if you want to expedite the cooking process at this point, many cooks will tell you um, will break out a whisk to help break down the grains faster. And at this stage, if you want to introduce longer cooking proteins, you can add them at this stage. So you can go the traditional route by adding marinated pork strips or meatballs, fish balls, cubed chicken thighs, or wait a bit and add some seafood. Stage three is when the rice is broken down. The starches have been released and have fully thickened the liquid. Now the bubbles at this stage are now the kind of like plop plop kind of bubbles where you need to turn it down and maybe pop a lid on it. Now if the congee is too thick at this point, you can also add more stock or water and then just give it a stir and you're good to go. Now at this point, you're pretty much ready to serve. Now if you have any quick cooking proteins or add-ons, you can add them now. This can include seafood like squid or shrimp, whitefish, thousand-year-old egg, all of those kinds of things. That's when you can add them. So now that your congee is ready to be served, you can season it how you like. Now some purists like to go the traditional route by adding very little. And when I'm at somewhere like Suns and they have that scalding hot, you know, earthenware bowl full of still boiling jok, they'll have seafood, you know, some scallions and fried shallots. And maybe I'll add a dash of white pepper, but I don't like to really add anything else because I like the taste of, of what it is as is. Um, some like to add soy sauce, chili oil, or exo sauce. In the case of like Filipino arroz caldo, 
we have garlic, ginger, and chicken infused congee. And you might want to add some patis, which is a fish sauce, for a little funk and balance. Now, the possibilities for flavors at this point are limitless, so don't be afraid to experiment. And there are a lot of add-ons that you can use that can make this humble bowl into something special and extraordinary. One of the things I'd like to note is that fermented tofu, the one that comes in the jar, it's like, uh, it comes out like blue cheese. The texture is like that, and it's super funky. You add one of those in there, mix it in, it's beautiful. So now that you know how to make the base congee, I'm going to show you another popular way to do this. And it is like if you're going to be making okayu or, or just something at the end of a hot pot experience like shabu shabu or sukiyaki. Um, normally at the end of the hot pot, whether it's shabu shabu, sukiyaki, Chinese you know, hot pot or jjigae, it's often common to take some rice and add it to the remaining liquid in the pot. And as you know, the liquid at the end of a hot pot is at its most intensely flavored and just perfect for this purpose. So all you do is you just grab your, your bowl of rice, mix everything together, and then give everyone a little bowl. It's a good little finish to the meal. And most times, if there's not a lot of liquid left over, the result is more of a flavored rice than a congee, but it is still delicious nonetheless. Now this last one is pretty ghetto. The hack is great, especially if you're late at night. And this involves like a cup of noodle or instant noodle if you finish the noodles and you're left with a bunch of soup. Now you can go two things. With the cup noodle, and if you've probably seen this on TikTok, a lot of people will beat an egg, put it in there, put it back in the microwave and make one of those fluffy Korean eggs, which is good. But you can also just grab some leftover rice in the fridge or one of those Korean, you know, single serving microwave rice and dump that into the soup and mix it. Now you can put it back in the microwave or whatever, or just mix it if you're lazy, um, and then go hard. When I open the restaurant in the morning, sometimes I'll take a scoop of rice and I'll add a ladle of ramen broth, super easy. And I'll just throw in some scallions, maybe some sliced shiitake, tofu puffs, and that's your breakfast. My wife and I were traveling through China on a tour and every morning, most of the folks stopped and had an American breakfast, bacon and eggs, that sort of thing. I immediately head over for the kongi and put preserved duck egg on it. Many of the other people got sick and uh, had gastrointestinal problems. I was just fine the whole time. Beyond its culinary appeal, kanji carries with it a sense of history and tradition. And as you can see by all of the people's stories that have been submitted in this episode, there is a lot of tradition, a lot of history, a lot of nostalgia for such a simple dish that just consists of rice and water. Now, it's a dish passed down through generations that we've heard as well, with each family adding its own unique twist. It's the embodiment of cultural heritage connecting us to our roots and reminding us of the flavors of home. In a world that often rushes through meals, barely taking us away from swiping away on our smartphones, Kanji invites us to slow down, savor, and appreciate the beauty in its simplicity. It's a celebration of the ordinary, a reminder that the most profound pleasures can be found in the everyday. So the next time you find yourself in need of comfort or taste of tradition, consider 
a steaming bowl of congee. Better yet, go to one of these places like a cha chan teng or your favorite Chinese restaurant and order one. It's in its warming, nourishing embrace that you just may discover the extraordinary within the ordinary. Hey, it's Chef Kelly Kim from Upcoming Soul Sister in downtown Disney happening fall 2024. Follow me on Instagram at Chef Kelly Kim and Soul Sister Eats. That's Soul Sister Eats as in Soul Korea, S-C-O-U-L, Sister Eats. Um, Jay, a.k.a. The Aimless Cook, and I've been friends on IG for with mutual respect for all things for doing in Asian food for a few years now, and happy to see him highlight what's a common thread for all of us. Joke, Bogao, Okaku, is essentially a simmer grain in some way that gives us so much comfort, food and a hug, especially as we go through fallback and cooler weather. It's what I grew up on eating. Savory jokes sizzled, drizzled with soy sauce, garlic, onion, sesame oil, and sesame seeds. So my new thing is to do the same, but with steel oats. I call it yum sauce, or basically umami boosted savory soy sauce made with garlic, green onions, sesame seeds, and sesame oil. And if you want to reach for the stars to add a crispy fried egg with oozy yolk. Yep. It's comfort in a bowl, and my thing, let's start a kanji joke movement. My name is Jade Coro, and you are listening to the Endless Cook Podcast. I have really fond memories of kanji or joke in our household. And growing up in a small mountain town, my mom showed her love by putting a warm bowl of joke or kanji by my bed when I woke up every morning. Ingredients that are so simple, but that show so much care and love, like the broth, the consistency of the rice, a thousand year old eggs, pork from the night before that got to sit in that broth, just simple eggs. There's comfort when I think of kanji.